Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When it comes to phone calls, they are generally easy to track. In an age of cell phones, we take for granted caller ID. And we know that phone companies keep records of who calls whom and when. Yet, with the mysteries that we will discover in this series, there are phone calls that are immensely puzzling or sometimes terrifying. This week, I'm Mysteriously Listed. Number 6. Katrina McVeigh In 1992, 27-year-old Katrina McVeigh of Woonsocket, Rhode Island, had three small children, but unfortunately she had lost custody of all of them. She lived with her parents. Katrina had also just escaped an abusive relationship with her husband, Richard McVeigh. In May 1992, Katrina was also struggling with a drug addiction and making ends meet through sex work. On May 3rd, 1992, Katrina was last seen getting into a car and she was never seen again. Due to her lifestyle, her family didn't realise she was missing until six weeks later. It was only then that a missing persons report was filed. The most obvious suspect in Katrina's disappearance was her estranged husband, Richard McVeigh. He supposedly called Katrina's mother and he told her that Katrina was buried besides the Blackstone River. This prompted Katrina's brother to search the banks of the river. And there he found the shirt that she was wearing when she went missing, but he couldn't be certain it was Katrina's. After several searches of the river, neither he nor the police found any other evidence. Then a short time later, Katrina's mother was in a Bible study group and also in attendance was Richard McVeigh. During the meeting, someone called Katrina's mother and left a message for her. The caller bluntly said, You will never find her. Sadly, the mysterious caller has been proven so far right because Katrina's body has never been found. Richard was interviewed by the police and he denied killing his wife and said he never called her mother. He said that Katrina's mother hated him and blamed him for all her daughter's problems. Without any evidence, Richard was never charged in the disappearance of Katrina McVeigh. However, Richard wasn't the only person of interest in the case. Between January 1990 and July 2001, 
there are five other unsolved murders of women who lived in Woon Socket. The first victim has never been identified. She was pulled from the Blackstone River on January 31st, 1990. The body had been in the water for at least four weeks. She was so badly decomposed that it was hard to distinguish many of her features. The medical examiner thought that she was African-American and aged in her late teens. The most likely cause of death was a blow to her head that fractured her skull. Then between November 1990 and March 1991, two sex workers, 18-year-old Christine Miller and 23-year-old Wendy Madden, were strangled to death. Fast forward three years to March 17, 1994, 28-year-old Megan Paul was found stabbed to death in her apartment. And finally, 31-year-old Cindy Roberts, who liked Katrina, also struggled with a drug addiction and was a sex worker. Cindy was reported missing on July 4, 2001 from Woonsocket. Her skeletal remains were found 16 months later in a wooded area near Lincoln, Rhode Island, which is about 10 miles away from Woonsocket. All five murders, like that of Katrina McVeigh, are unsolved today, and it's unknown if any of them are connected. Then between 2003 and 2004, there was another string of murders in Woonsocket. Three sex workers were strangled to death and then dismembered. The difference between these three murders and the other six is that this time the killer was caught and he confessed. Jeffrey S. Malhot was convicted of the three murders in 2006 and he was sentenced to two life terms in prison. When the original series of murders began in January 1990, Malhot would have then been 19 years old. He has been questioned in the murders of the other six women, but he has never been charged. The murders of the other three women in Woonsocket are currently cold, and unless someone comes forward, they are likely to remain unsolved. Number 5. Jamie Santos In 1991, 27-year-old Jamie Santos of Wheeling, Illinois, was working as an exotic dancer, mostly performing at private parties and often made thousands of dollars a week. She was no longer happy and wanted to do something less risky. On October 27, 1990, she decided that she had enough. She cancelled her booking and organised a night at home. She rented a few movies and called a friend. The next morning, October 28th at 11.30am, a 911 call came into police. Investigators rushed to the scene, arriving only five minutes later, but it was too late. Jamie was discovered unresponsive. 
Jamie was discovered unresponsive, fully dressed and lying on the floor. Her head was neatly propped up on a pillow. Paramedics attempted to revive her, but they were unable to. There was no sign of forced entry, no sign of a struggle, and there was no evidence that Jamie had been sexually assaulted. The medical examiner determined that Jamie had been suffocated with her pillow. A few fingerprints were discovered and sent in for testing, but ultimately there were no matches. To date, the most substantial clue investigators have acquired is the 911 call, phoned in by an unidentified man only blocks from Jamie's home. He called from a payphone at a local liquor store. While investigators have a clear recording of the tape and have played it to the media repeatedly since the 1990s, the man in the phone call's voice has never been identified. 911. Yeah, I can barely hear you. All right, he's calling from an address in Buffalo Grove. Yeah. Right. When were you at that house, sir? Right. Sir. Police initially theorised the call was not the killer, but simply a witness, because it didn't make sense to them that the killer would call 911. There were also some conspicuous indicators that Jamie knew the male caller. He had her exact address memorised up to the unusual name of the suburb she lived in, Stonehenge instead of Stonehenge. Also, since there was no sign of forced entry, Jamie most likely let her killer in willingly. Surveillance of the man standing outside the liquor store where the call was made from was investigated, but the man seen in the footage was later cleared. Since then, there have been little to no leads in the case, but the 911 call continues to circulate. Number 4. Angela Hammond April 4, 1991 was an unusually warm spring evening in Clinton, Missouri. 19-year-old Angela Hammond was accompanied by her fiancé, Rob Schaefer, to her mother's house for a family barbecue. Shortly after 9pm, Angela and Rob decided to head home because Rob had plans to babysit his younger brother at 10pm 
and Angela was going to meet some friends. At around 11.15pm, Angela parted ways with her friends and decided to call Rob from a payphone in a parking lot near the food barn store. She did not own a home phone and wanted to tell him that she was exhausted and planned on going back home to soak in the bath. The two continued their conversation for about half an hour. In the midst of the call, Angela mentioned to Rob that there was a strange man circling the parking lot several times in an older model green Ford pickup truck with a mural of a jumping fish in the back window. The man would be described as having a beard, wearing glasses, coveralls and a baseball cap and as looking absolutely filthy. Moments later, the driver pulled over near her and stepped outside his truck and walked towards the empty phone booth next to Angela. Seconds later, he returned to his truck and grabbed a flashlight and started waving it around as if he was searching for something. Trying to settle the uneasy tension, Angela asked if he needed to use the phone, but he told her no. All of a sudden, there was a horrifying scream and the line went dead. This alarmed and concerned Rob, who immediately got into his own car and began speeding towards the grocery store, which was only about seven blocks away. He was hoping he could intervene in whatever was going on. As he approached the scene, Rob claims that a two-toned green Ford pickup truck went roaring past at top speed, going in the opposite direction. He said that he could distinctly hear a woman screaming from the truck. He allegedly turned his car around and gave chase, but his car died from damage to the transmission that happened during turning his car around. For the first week of the investigation, Rob was considered the prime suspect in Angela's disappearance. They were initially sceptical of Rob's story. To them, it sounded too contrived and convenient. After passing a polygraph test and two witnesses coming forward claiming to see the same truck as Rob described to police, he was eventually ruled out. Investigators also looked into Angela's ex-boyfriend, Bill Barker. At the time Angela went missing, she was pregnant, and there were rumours going around that Bill Barker was the father of her baby. But he denied these allegations, and after looking further into things, he was no longer considered a suspect. There has been little in ways of evidence into what happened to Angela and these lack of answers have continued to plague friends and family of Angela Hammond's. The Hammond family still pursues closure to make sure that Angela's memory is not forgotten. They still remain in contact with Rob and consider him part of their family. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Number three, Justin Berwinkle. In 1990, when Justin Berwinkle was 18 years old, he joined the United States Army. Justin's goal was to become a ranger and serve with the elite combat unit. For three years, he was stationed at Fort Ord in Monterey, California. During his time there, he started a relationship with Uland and Tunes. Uland was a computer science student at Santa Clara University. Things seemed to be going well for Justin until 1993 when his friends noticed that he started acting strange. Uland later reported that Justin was moody and would abruptly end dates, that he started taking mysterious trips back to Fort Ord without explanation. Then in the spring of 1993, Justin was transferred to Fort Lewis in Washington State. After two months there, Justin was given two weeks leave. He drove the 80 miles to Santa Clara to spend his leave with Uland. She would later report that during this time, his behaviour became even more erratic. He would always carry with him a briefcase and he wouldn't tell her what was inside. One day, Yuland secretively watched Justin open the briefcase. She said there were papers inside of it and that Justin was shredding them. Not long after, Yuland left and when she returned home, Justin was sobbing. When Yuland asked him what was wrong, he refused to share with her why he was crying. Not long after this episode, Yulan received a strange phone call. It was a man and he told Yulan to tell Justin that the mission was off. Confused, Yulan asked the man what he meant, but he would just repeat himself that she needed to tell Justin that the mission was off. Then he hung up the phone without another word. When Yuland told Justin about the strange phone call, Justin again became very upset. He started cursing and then stomped out of the apartment. At the end of the two-week leave, Justin drove back to Fort Lewis, but he didn't stay long. Once back in Washington, Justin bought two handguns and a hundred rounds of ammunition and then went AWOL. Justin went back to Santa Clara and hid out in Yulan's apartment. After a few days there, he called Fort Lewis, telling them that he was making plans on returning to the base. The thing is, he never did. Instead, again, he started making secretive trips to Fort Ord. Yolanda pleaded with Justin to tell her what was going on. She was desperate to help him, despite what trouble he was in. 
The only insight Justin would give her was alluding to the 1992 movie White Sands. A quick Google search of this movie tells me that it's about a small-town sheriff who finds a dead body and half a million dollars in the desert. The sheriff decides to impersonate the dead man and gets caught up in an international illegal arms deal. Shortly after this conversation with Yuland on June 12, 1993, Justin... Justin left Yuland's apartment and disappeared. Three months later, his car was found in the parking lot of a beachfront hotel not far from Fort Ord. The guns he purchased weren't in the car and they have never been found. In the trunk of his car was his briefcase. Inside the briefcase was his keys and his wallet. In his wallet was his army dog tags. Before he went missing, Justin told Yuland that if anyone ever found his dog tags and he wasn't around, then it meant that he was probably dead. The police think that it is quite possible that this is what happened, that Justin is most likely dead. It is believed that he may have had a mental breakdown and took his own life. Another possibility was that he was murdered. He may have been involved in some kind of illegal weapon cell and he was killed when something went wrong. Or he was double-crossed. Or he was killed by a greedy partner. One other theory that is speculated is that Justin chose to disappear on his own accord. He may have chosen to leave when something went wrong with a supposed arms deal, or he may needed to disappear for another reason entirely. Until Justin Bergwinkel is found, dead or alive, his family and friends may never know what happened to him. Number 2. Troy Cook In 1998, 19-year-old Troy Cook was going through an important rite of passage. He had moved out of his family home into his own apartment. Troy had recently been bumped up to full-time at his job at the Atlantic Superstore. While he didn't plan to be working there forever, it did allow him the financial independence from his parents. By May 1998, he was settled into his small apartment in Truro, Nova Scotia, within walking distance of the store where he worked. He shared this two-bedroom apartment with one of his co-workers. On June 10th, just three weeks after he moved out, Troy went to visit his family in rural Kemptown and spent the night there. The following morning, June 11th, Troy's father, Tom, he drove his son back to Truro. On the drive, the two confirmed their plans to meet for dinner the following night. Tom left Troy outside of his apartment, but didn't wait to see if he went inside because he was in a rush to drop his car off for a service and get to work. 
About an hour later, the Atlantic Superstore, where Troy worked, received a phone call. Troy, or someone claiming to be him, told his supervisor that he would not be able to make it in for his shift later that day. The call was strange because Troy had never called in sick to work before. While he made enough to cover his bills, he could not afford to miss too many shifts. However, when interviewed by police, Troy's supervisor was pretty sure that she was speaking to Troy on the phone, but could not be 100% sure because he did sound strange. Because of this, it could have very well been someone other than Troy that made the call, or possibly Troy making the call under duress. When Troy didn't show at the restaurant to meet his family for dinner on June 12th, the day after he was last seen, his father began calling Troy's work and several of his friends to try and find him. When he couldn't locate his son, he contacted the police to follow a missing persons report. The strange phone call to the Atlantic Superstore got even more stranger when the call was traced. Investigators determined that it had been made from a phone booth outside of a Tim Hortons fast food store in Bible Hill, Nova Scotia. Bible Hill was on the same route that Troy and his father had taken back to his apartment on the day he went missing. If Troy had been in Bible Hill that day, it doesn't make sense that he would let his father go further than he had to, especially considering he knew his father was in a rush that morning. There is also the issue of time. There would have not been enough time for Troy to make his way from his apartment in Truro to Bible Hill on foot in between the time he was dropped off and the time the call was made from the payphone. Since Troy lived within walking distance of his work, he didn't have a car. So did Troy not make the phone call or did some unknown person drive him into Bible Hill to make the call? When Troy was not immediately located, his family made the difficult decision to pack up his belongings and bring them back to their home. Troy's father, Tom, saw his son's roommate at the Atlantic Superstore where he worked with Troy. Tom told him about these plans, to which his roommate asked Tom to leave him Troy's two guitars. He claimed that this was what Troy would have wanted. At this stage, Troy had only been missing for two weeks. Tom did not agree to this insensitive and, in my opinion, suspicious request. Tom Cook has made it his mission in the 20 years since he last saw his son to find him and bring him home. He has plastered the Truro area with missing persons posters and even has them in the windows of his car. This way, he can ensure that people know about Troy's story wherever he goes. To this day, Tom actively seeks out media interviews to keep Troy's story in the public eye. 
Troy's younger brother Mike has created a Facebook group with the hope of spreading awareness about Troy's story. Number 1. Connie McCalla. In 1978, 17-year-old Connie McCalla was living with her father in Napa, California. On the evening of June 9th, Connie had plans to go to a party. In the late afternoon, a family friend drove her to a Western clothing store where she was supposed to meet a friend. But where she went after that is a mystery 40 years later. Connie never made it to the party and she never returned home. The police were called but they didn't take the case too seriously because of Connie's recent behaviour. Connie, like many teenagers, had a bit of a rebellious streak. At the time of her disappearance... She was dating a 25-year-old man and her parents did not approve of the relationship. Their disapproval did not stop her from seeing him, though. She would sneak out of the house at night and walk to his house. Each time her family found the bed empty, they would call the police, who would pick her up and bring her home. Connie also had a history of running away. In the first half of 1978, there were six recorded times that she ran away. So the police just assumed that Connie chose to disappear. But her parents were adamant that her disappearance wasn't self-imposed. They pointed out that Connie didn't take any of her belongings with her. They also said that on the day that Connie disappeared... She wasn't angry like the other time she had run away. In fact, she was in a good mood and she was excited to go to the party that night. The police didn't take the parents' pleads seriously and the case didn't get any media attention. Connie's next-door neighbour wasn't even aware of her disappearance. Then in the weeks that followed, Connie's mother received several disturbing phone calls. Sometimes it was a man on the phone, while other times it was a woman. In each call, they claimed to know what happened to Connie. In some calls, they would say that she had been abducted, while on other calls, they would say that she had been murdered. The calls got to be so bad that Connie's mother had a nervous breakdown. The callers were never identified and it's unclear if these people were responsible for Connie's disappearance or if it was just a sick prank. In 2001, Connie's mother submitted a DNA sample to the federal database for missing children hoping that it would give them some answers to Connie's whereabouts. Unfortunately, to date, it hasn't provided her family with any closure. The police did not believe that after all this time that Connie was still alive. But they do not know the location of the remains or who was responsible for her death, and the case is currently cold. 
What would you like to see next mysteriously listed? Do you have a particular theme that interests you? Contact us on Facebook and Instagram at Mysteriously Listed and on Twitter at Mysterious List. To find out what inspired us this episode, our favourite podcast, if you wish to learn more about the cases we discussed today and to listen to each episode, please visit mysteriouslylisted.com. If you like what you heard today, we would love your support by sharing on your social media of choice. You can also help the show if you could rate, review and subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast app. Audio production, research, additional writing and hosting is by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 